nice to see everyone again, or most all of us now. Um, let's just begin in prayer, and then we'll get into the Word of God. Dear Lord, heaven is what you own, and you command all things to be done according to your will. You make us, you've made us your people, and you give us ears to hear the word which you've inspired for our instruction. God, I pray right now you would help us in our hearing, you'd help me in the proclamation of the word, and Lord, I, I want us to look more and more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, my Lord, our Savior, our friend. Lord, we want to think about you appropriately and to be instructed by you and grow today. Lord, your word changes us, and so we humbly ask that you would accomplish your will and conforming us to the image of your Son today, and hearing this word in Jesus' name, amen. So at 2.30 a.m. last, I guess this morning, there are two suspects wearing dark clothing, and they ignited multiple plants located next to CSU towards Normal Avenue, actually, in, um, in the 200 block, and those people fled. And then again, in the morning at 4.26 a.m., two suspects, presumably the same people, had a lit Molotov cocktail, which they attempted to throw into an unoccupied university police vehicle. However, a UPD officer interrupted the arson and chased the suspects. They got away in a, in a dark, later model Ford SUV. Um, and they had removed the license plate. That happened this morning, and, and that's one of many sorts of events that are going on in our world today. All sorts of tumult, uh, lots of it. Uh, we might have a link, we might not. It might just be done because. And in, in such times, I'm struck uh, by this particular text and this idea that we're going to go through today in 1 Peter chapter 1, 17 through 21. And I just have a question to, to ponder as we begin. What, how do we know what's, what's right and wrong? How do we determine what's good or, or evil? And why, why would somebody do, like you see, you hear what I just read, and, I, and every one of us, you go, why would somebody do that? What, what is driving that sort of impulse in a person? And we're going to think about what should be in our minds as believers and what instructs us. How do we live? What are the things that should motivate and fuel our living today? How does that change? Why is that different from somebody else? And so, as we begin, just as a recap a little bit, we, we've been in 1 Peter for a while now, uh, whenever I get to preach, and there's three major commands in the section that we've been tackling. The first is hope fully in the second coming of Christ. 
That's an amazing command that uh, we covered a little bit last time and then the time before. The second command was become holy. And we identified that in all your conduct, excuse me. And we identified that as being conformed more to the image of Christ. And he is our example. And to be holy, we covered that concept. And, and what that means is to be set apart and be separate. And then the third thing is where we'll find ourselves today. The third one is conduct yourselves in fear, which is the third command. This is the one we'll be in today. And if we're honest, that kind of language sounds odd to many people. It doesn't just sound odd. It might be really jarring. And beyond jarring, for some, it might be off-putting. Like, I don't like the way that sounds. Now, Peter, however, on the other hand, is not so inclined to feel the same way. In fact, in 2.17, further on down the road, he's going to say, Fear God! He's emphatic about it. He doesn't mince words. And if we're going to be Christians of the book, we have to understand this concept. And to our modern ears, it feels a little bit uh, antiquated. And it is. It's really old. And so we're going to look at some of the uh, two different Old Testament scriptures, and then we're going to look at one New Testament scripture before we get in. But the concept is the fear of God. I encourage any of you, if you have a Bible app, type in fear of God and go through all the references. There's many more other ways you could look it up, um, but this is the concept. And if we're going to be biblical, we need a, I think we need a little bit of a, a few scriptures before we get into Peter. Um, and so what I want you guys to do is I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I'll read the lengthy passage 12 through 21 in Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'll read a short one before we get there. We're only going to look at three. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is in context. Um, I'm going to start a timer, you guys, because I, I do not want to go over. And there's a lot here. So the first one that we're going to come to in the context, Abraham has not disclosed to uh, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. He's not disclosed that Sarah is his wife. And uh, if you don't know the story, Abimelech gets visited in a dream and, and finds out that Abraham's wife is Sarah. And he's like, Aaron, what the heck are you doing to me? That's, that's your wife. Why didn't you tell me? And... The reason we're looking at this is verse 11. Verse 11 reads this way. Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place. And they, they will kill me because of my wife. So these people, or he's thinking, No fear of God. Okay, what that means in this situation is if there's no fear of God, then... I'm liable to get murdered. Or th these people want to commit adultery with my wife, and so I need to be out of the way, so they'll kill me. So there's, there's lust involved. There's coveting another man's wife. There's murder. Those are some serious sins, correct? And that is a product of somebody who doesn't have an awareness of the fear of God or doesn't operate in what the Bible is calling the fear of God. So it is a serious thing. It's a really bad thing not to have. Uh, again, I would just say in, in our context, many people 
are going to hear fear of God and think of it as a yucky, maybe a like below the Christian life sort of term, and it's not. And so we just need to say at the outset to not have this, you're liable to have your heart run away with all sorts of terrible sins. All sorts of evil is going to come from you if you don't have this abiding concept that will come to in Peter. So second text, we're going to see a more positive view of this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I'll start in verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? That's a really good question for us. I just need to pause. What's, what's the duty of Israel? And what's our duty as Christians? Well, it's right here. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the Lord's commands and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. So just in passing, a lot of people, and I think our tendency is to hear fear of God. And think of this as a, a dreary, maybe burdensome sort of thing. But Moses doesn't so see it that way. He, he crams together loving God and serving him with your whole heart and your whole soul, your whole person. That being zealous for the Lord and also fearing him and, and right next to each other. He smashes those two things together because they're not contradictory at all. And so we should avoid the temptation to do, to do just that. I'm going to read the rest of the text. And then we're going to see fear of God again a little bit below. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples. As it is to this day, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show Love for the alien. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. And he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Now we're a little bit removed from Israel, but how much of that still rings true? It rings so true for us today. This, this command is not isolated or different or separate from other ways that we're called to serve God. It is in total unity with the rest of the commands to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, to love other people in our midst, of the stranger. And so we just need to come to this text here bearing in mind some of the scriptural background. I'll do one more and you guys can flip forward to 1 Peter 1 chapter or 
chapter 1, verse 17. And I'll just do one more real quick because it'll get us into um, the, the other part of the sermon that we'll get to. But 1 Corinthians 5, and he's talking about being at home with the Lord and, and having died physically going to be with Christ. And he's talking about being in the body and being hard-pressed between the two. But he's going to say right here um, in verse 9, he says, Therefore, we also have this ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning whether he's alive here in the body or, or not, you could say at all times. So this is his ambition at all times, to be pleasing to him. So to be pleasing to God, and we'll wrap that into fear of the Lord in a, in, in a little bit here. But why? Why be pleasing? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So that's our scriptural context. And so, beloved, just like I said before with Peter, he gives an encouragement and an admonishment to like prep your mind. Because I, I believe that this is jarring or striking. This is, this is hard for me just reading through the chapter to go, it's exactly what he's talking about. And to know exactly what Peter's saying. Um, but upon much reflection, I think it's more simple than I was making it. But I think it's category creating. So buckle up and, and be ready for word pictures from the Apostle Peter. So the first thing, well, let's just read, read the text in First Peter and then we'll get moving. So if you remember before this. There's really no good stopping point from verse 3 on through 21. It's really kind of like, it's, it makes no sense where to break anything up, but you got to do it because you guys can't sit here for 15 hours and listen to sermons. It's just not doable. And I'm not able to preach and Pat, even though he could go on and on and on about John, there's no way to stop. <laughs> uh, or there's, we have to stop. We're just human. So, and, and finite and limited and so we have to stop. But here, just to get you up to speed, is he's been glorying in the first portion of this section about the, the, the wonderful salvation that we have and how God the Father has caused us to be born again. We have been given a new life, and now we have uh, a call, two calls, in fact, this first one uh, to become holy. Well, that's coming on the heels of what God has done he has changed us. He's made us new. And now we can work with God. We can, we can become holy. We can become sanctified. We can be made more Christ-like because and by virtue of what God has done in Christ. Now, on this command, I just want you to notice, if you look down in verse 17, he says, in the command itself, in the second portion of verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves in fear. During the time of your stay on earth. And I just want to point out that conduct and be holy in all your conduct. That's, a, that's the same word. He's trying to link those together because those make, make sense with one another. And those are, you should read them together. And what I will just say is 
is just to see the consistency a little bit. Think about somebody. Think about the most godly person you know outside of Christ. Think about him and his actions or her interactions and how peculiar and holy and different that, action, that person actually is. If you live in the fear of God, as we'll explain, you will be obeying the other command to be holy. Your, your mind and your actions will be so characterized by this thing, I pray, that holiness is the other portion of what can be a description about who you are. So, that being the case, Peter says in verse 17, let's read it together. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Conduct yourselves in fear. Before we get to the fear of God... Just notice that phrase that he tacked on to the end. He says, your stay on earth. I don't know what the ESV says, but it, it might say you're sojourning. That's what it means. You're, you're an alien. You're, you're a, a stranger living in a different place. Like, if I was an American living, I am, and I'm living in Britain, I'd be a sojourner there. I had a house. I was living there. I'd be known as a sojourner. That's what he says you are. This is a concept that he brought up in the very beginning, and... The fact that we're being told this is because you need to situate yourself and your mind to comprehend the fact that you have been so dramatically changed that earth is no longer your home. You are meant for heaven. You're designed to be before the face of God in glory, praising him and serving him forever and ever. Amen. That is a radical separation from who you were and who I was. And now the, the call to, to fear God is just going to be characteristic of, of who we have already been made to be. Who we have already been created to be. So one thing to put in the pocket and to think about regularly is that I am, I am made for heaven. I have been changed. And I can and I, I will be conformed to Christ. I will fear God. So take that as an encouragement we as, as we get in. Now Peter gives us the command, fear God, or conduct yourselves in fear. Let your actions be characterized by fear. And we're going to go through the two reasons. One will be verse 17 beforehand, and the rest of it will be the second reason. And then we'll have a closing exhortation. That's where we're going. So the first reason why we should fear God, why should you fear God, is, is given right here. Look at who he describes God to be. If you address as Father. So that's one portion we'll tackle. And then he says the one, Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And this is really what I, what I mean before by it's peculiar is this is a strange combo. He's father and he's impartial judge. So we're going to look at both of those. First, let's begin with father. So God as your father is something that we're used to and accustomed to. Uh, we say it all the time. So I, I think I started our father when I prayed and we've been taught by Jesus to pray that way. 
But fathers also experience that probably all of us have had, unless you didn't have a father in the home. But if you've had a father, there's a, a real-life connection point. Your dad, your father, has authority over you. He says what happens and what doesn't happen. And because he's been given a certain authority by God, we have a certain level of, of respect for our dad. They, they take care of us. There's, there's all sorts of connection point, but you see the distinction between children and parents. It'd be weird if my little son said, Daddy, you go sit over in the corner for, for hitting mommy, <laughs> which I would never do. But, but do you know the picture, right? Uh, well, he's, he's used to hitting his brothers. That's why I'm thinking that way. <laughs> so, but, but we have uh, uh, so many uh, concrete examples of what a father is to us. And so here, God is father. We're supposed to take those things, and we have categories. And fear, in terms of how it's translated, some translations will say conduct as to the command, conduct yourselves with reverence. It's going to translate that word a little bit differently instead of literally fear. And that's right in some regard, right? We, we understand that in fear, there's a couple different kinds of things we can talk about. We can talk about like a, a spooky sort of like, this is a, uh, in a thriller, you might be scared and there might be a spooky scene or whatever. Um, there's a fear in which you're trembling over a, a punishment. Um, or there's a, a reverence and respect that you would have for a father. In fact, how does the fifth commandment start? Honor your father and mother. That's reverential. That's respect. That might be a, That is part of what it means to fear God. Fear God as you would your father. Now, he's the Heavenly Father, and we make this distinction accordingly. But he has the authority to wield discipline as well. And that's, that's where our will go second. But our tendency in this culture is to so water down what this is commanding us to do that I think people fall off on this side of the horse constantly. Many in the church today who are going to talk about God as, as Father are going to talk about Him as Father only. And what I mean by that is he, God appears like this big papa bear in the sky. He's just my buddy. Don't you know He's a good, good Father? It's who He is. It's who He is. I, I'm loved by Him. And God is this... Well, if you read to your children a Max Lucado book, you'll find out really quick that it becomes an ishy, squishy sentimentality. There's this, God is my best friend, he's my pal, and, and we fall off the horse in thinking he's only that. And to not have a balanced view of what a father is biblically. And just to root us in the stream of, of biblical teaching... We should be instructed as to thinking about how, how this text situates itself in that Jesus taught us how to pray to the Father. Listen to how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father, who art in heaven, set apart your name as holy. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, as much as that is really, really comforting to us, knowing that we've been a part of that kingdom, it is not a squishy sentimentality. It, it is not ishy-squishy. It is reverential at its core. It is an acknowledgement of God is God and we are not. We are human and, and we really need, I think, more often than being told that the, some of the more tender things, we also need to think about the fact that if folks fall off the horse in that way, what happens is they become heedless to God's commands. They can become loose with what scripture demands that we, we do. And sanctification is just, it just becomes something that, you know, it might happen, it might not. But the, we have a couple serious commands in, in a row, and we have to recognize that for both ourselves and our brothers and sisters sitting here, that, that we have an active part to play in, in our sanctification, in being made holy, and in living before God every day in, your, in what you do. And I just want to speak to that just for one second. If we see a brother or sister walking carelessly in their conduct, and I mean sinning, they're walking off in a sin, and they need to be admonished. And you and me need to admonish each other when we see that, that yes, God is tender as a father and will receive anybody in repentance. But at the same time, he is also the impartial judge. You see that in our text for our second one. He's father, yet he's impartial judge. So the analogy is really striking. If you picture a father behind the judgment bench... And you coming in as a son, receiving this sort of warning, and you're sitting there as the accused, maybe. There's a term in the Old Testament, impartiality, a lot of the times is a word picture that says, God doesn't recognize faces. You think Lady Justice is blind, right? He treats you according to the law. And so th this is, is a, a fright. It can be a frightful warning and should be for those who are walking off our brothers and sisters who need admonishment into sin, being careless about the things of God. And we need to say some things like this. And I'm just going to paraphrase some scriptures and quote some directly. When someone is walking off in a sin and you care about them, you might say something like, Every thought and motive of the heart is before the face of God on Judgment Day. You might also say, every wrong that is done will be repaid. You might say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. You might encourage them to cut off their sin, like we hear in Colossians. Put to death... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why? Wake up! Be chastened unto Christ. Peter warns us in this text 
with who God is. And that if you play footsie with sin and, and begin to engage with sinful actions in the ways of the world, and the fear of God is not present in your soul, you need to hear that God sees what you do. God will judge every deed with exacting justice. And this is a really, really weighty thing. A very weighty thing. And some of you may be thinking, well, why, why do I need that warning if I'm saved? I'm secure. I'm okay. To the child of God, when... So I just point out that this is written to Christians. And what is a warning in Scripture meant to do? It's meant to do a couple things. The first is to like prick the conscience, to, to stir up your conscience. It acted like a cattle prod to get us out of our sluggishness and maybe some sin we're stuck in. It, it, it is there because in that moment to the believer, the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes and he, he works on the heart and he divides between soul and spirit. And he starts to change you. That's why it comes. And, and lastly, it drives us to Christ. When, when we hear about God's judgment and his exacting justice, it drives us to Christ. And that's exactly where Peter goes. And I believe that's where, why he says the second part. Let's read together the second reason for why we should fear God. Um, beginning with knowing. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the, the Peter, if you're thinking with him and he's issuing a warning to those who would go off into wanton sin and to be tempted to, to, to not be conscious of God's law and his character and his will. What Peter does is he asks in verse 17 in the form of a question. He says, if you call on him as father and impartial judge. It's a similar thing to, and, and it emphasizes the warning, right? You have to ask yourself the question, well, do I call on him as father? Do I know that he's going to judge me on the last day? Yes, I do, I do know this. I, I do believe this. And when you believe this, it, it leads you to this second portion where it begins with knowing. Knowing that you have been redeemed. You should, you should. So think about the argument here, because this feels, this is peculiar. I don't argue like this, and I should. But Peter says that you should live in fear of God, all while knowing, and because you know, that he's redeemed you. That's an interesting argument. It's a really good one. But it's, it's interesting nonetheless. Let's go... First, and ask the question is, what is redeemed? We say it, we kind of know what it is, but, but redemption, before we tackle 
how the fear of God, uh, how we are fueled to fear God by this reality of being redeemed, we have to ask what it means. And the first thing that it means is it means to liberate or to deliver. And then the second portion is by payment of a price. So I'll repeat that and then you guys can put it in your your uh, mind bank and, and think about redemption. It is helpful to think about this way, to liberate or deliver with payment of a price. And you'll see both of those here. So the first thing, when we hear redeem, we should think liberate and or, or, or to deliver. But that assumes that you're caught in a bad way. It assumes that there's a, a ominous situation that's already present that you need to be rescued from. And last week when we talked about God's calling, we talked about his rescuing. But here in the text, it says what we're redeemed from. If you see here after the silver and gold, we are redeemed from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers. Last time I was up here, we were called from former ways and lusts of our ignorance. We're called from that. This is a similar way of talking, right? You can hear the, the coordinating effect. We are redeemed from futile ways. So futile living. So when we lived before God redeemed us, what our ways amounted to was absolutely nothing. Zilch, nada. What Ecclesiastes says over and over again, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That was your life. That was my life. Absolutely worthless. Everything we did. Could have built a hospital. Could, could have done all sorts of, of common good things. But it was empty. It was futile. It was not done in the fear of God. It was not done in faith. And therefore it was worthless. We've been redeemed from that. And he also says that our ways of life are inherited from our forefathers. And I, I love this because God is our father, which we've already established. And we have fathers in our past who we've been redeemed from <laughs> and what they did. So the, the character of life that was passed down to you naturally and that you are born into is a futile, sinful, terrible life. <laughs> One that doesn't fear God. Your deeds that you had been handed down, you willingly abided with and took hold of, and you rebelled against God. If you had a, a family coat of arms, it would be an emblem of a guy shaking his fists at God. That's your coat of arms. That's what your family stands for, and... <clears throat> All your ancestors, that's what they stand for, before redemption. But now, beloved, this is the sweet part. You have been delivered. You've been redeemed. You've been made. You've been taken from one household of sin and moved into a household of the Son of God, the, the righteous Son, Jesus Christ. You have a new father. You had fathers in the past, and God redeemed you from that, and you're adopted into his family. You have a new family. You have a new way of life. You have a new coat of arms. 
And it is, it is love and the fear of God. The symbol would be obedient children, like we saw last week. Or somebody who is calling on God the Father and is recognizing who he is in his character. And so my encouragement is to conduct yourself as a son. Conduct yourself as a daughter of God. That's who you are. Revere your father's ways. Stand underneath them and and be submissive to his, his rule. Redemption is not just deliverance, but it's also the payment of a price. So if you see in your text, it says you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold. I want to buy a house. My wife wants to buy a house, and someday we will. And when we do, what we're going to be left with is a couple pennies to rub together and say, this is our savings now, nothing, because <laughs> it's expensive to buy a house. Um, and I just want you to picture this analogy because it, uh, I think it's helpful for us. If I were to buy a house and we were to start doing renovations because the house we can afford is going to be a little dilapidated, I'm sure. We're renovating the house and we get, finally get to the basement and we break through a wall and lo and behold, we find a pallet of gold. Knee-high pallet of those gold bricks that you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Knee-high. I just became the richest man that you'll ever know. And to me and my wife, we would be like through, through the roof. I think one of those bars of gold is like $500,000. And I'm talking about a stack of them just sitting there. And they're all mine now, tax-free. That would change our life, right? That, that amount of money, that, that value, that, that would just be... That would be crazy. And Peter compares gold and silver to the value of what we've been redeemed as and says it's but dust and ashes. All the gold in the world, all the silver in the world put together and combined is nothing compared to what you've been redeemed with. The redemption that we have in Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything you can think of money-wise. You could trade. It doesn't matter what you trade. Because the, the payment that is required is one that cannot be bought. The payment in this text, as you can see, what, what was paid? It's the blood of Christ. See, our debt is not a financial debt. In fact, if somebody tried to buy off God, he would be laughed to scorn. Can you imagine offering God all the riches of the world when he made them? No, you and I have sinned against a holy and righteous God. We have a debt such that requires life, your very life blood. It requires punishment for eternity in hell. Me included, all of us. But beloved, here's the, here's the great and, and amazing news is that God himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have co- coordinated together to redeem you. To Jesus, think about this. The infinite, eternal God before time 
planned and purposed to save you from sins that were not committed yet. You and I have fallen in Adam, and we have seen how devastating and terrible that is. We, we know how sinful we are before a holy God. And, and now we see ourselves in light of, of Christ. What he, I'm going to pause here real quick in Game of Variants. I'm getting really excited. Beloved, the, the good news is that you have been redeemed by God himself. And what that included is that he take on the form of a man. God doesn't bleed blood unless he's incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And that in and of itself is we will spend eternity thinking about the humility and the graciousness this is a pointer to what Peter's talking about with his tender mercy, his, him being a father to us. Um, but to be, to be reverenced, God has taken on the form of a man in the person, Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Son, God the Father has sent, and the Son has willingly come, and he's added humanity to himself. And that is for the express purpose to redeem us. Fully man, fully God, Jesus Christ lived in fear of God his whole life without wavering. This is, this is an amazing reality. He, he has God's law and his judgment before him. He's not accomplished redemption. And what stands over him, if he were to break the law, like all of us, is judgment. And in every single jot and tittle of law, Jesus fulfilled. He had to live holy every second of his life, and he did it. He had to be obedient in the most difficult of situations. You can imagine the Garden of Gethsemane, or you can, you can imagine... Being at the tomb of, of Lazarus or, or being tempted in the wilderness. All sorts of things that Jesus de dealt with that I can't even imagine dealing with. And faithful in every single one. He had to become the sacrifice for sins. In our text you see here it says, As that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So as to his perfection... Perfect. No blemish or spot. But then he has to willingly, in accord with God, his, his very own plan, go and die for sinners in a, in a horrific death on a cross. And even worse than that, under the wrath of God. And beloved, this is the good news because he did it. He accomplished it. And so what, is, what does that mean? How does that reality of the gospel which we have, how does that fuel us to, to, to live in, in fear before God? To, to think about the, and to contemplate the amazing length at which it took him. His loving compassion which is extended towards us and the fact that his judgment and his wrath which is infinite, has been satisfied in Christ. This is why 
Peter talks about the value of this sacrifice, it, it leads us to tremble because we're supposed to bear the penalty and he bore it in our place. That causes trembling. I can't, to picture yourself or to, to think about on the judgment day to be standing under the wrath of God and all my sins being made known and have to make an account for everyone. Jesus died in my place. That causes me to tremble. It should cause you to have that sort of fear, which is separate from reverence. There's a sort of real trembling before that. And then there's also the, the awe and the wonder and the respect and that, that sense that, oh my gosh, this is, this is my father who's done this for me. And it just wants, you just want to be running into his arms and to be covered by that. You're not, you're not fearful and trembling that, that, you, that you want to run and hide from him. You want to run to him and to his provision of Christ. And so when we talk about the fear of God, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a thing where we see ultimately in the gospel who he is and what he's done for us and the terror that he, he has stayed. Under. We, we live in the mercy of God and... And it just propels us to run to him. I don't know any other, any other words. There's probably a million other words to say. But this sort of fear, I want you all to embrace as God's loving provision for you as a, as a father and staying of his wrath in Christ. And I, I have to wrap up. So let's read. Verse 20 and 21, and I'll give some closing exhortations. In 20 and 21, it says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The plan of redemption was made before the world existed. And it says, Peter says to the listeners who are finding themselves right now believing in God, when this letter is being written and to us today, that the reason we believe in God is because this is God's plan accomplished. He, he accomplished it. And the resurrection, raising from the dead, and the giving him glory, I take that to mean... Jesus is ascended into heaven and he's sitting and reigning on the throne until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That glorious victory after the death of Christ over sin and the grave, that was for you. Again, tender mercies of our God, that was intended for you. And it says that so that your faith is in God, okay, got that, your confidence is in God. If God can accomplish that sort of redemption, incarnation, planning this from all eternity, bringing, bringing Christ and, and all, that, all that he's done, you should have utter confidence that in Christ, the Father, and the Spirit. You should have 
utter confidence. But he brings us back here to say that the, that the purpose of those things is not only your faith, but that your hope would be in God. Remember that in verse 3, that's where he started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So you now see come full circle and, and, and have all this content, biblical gospel content, to be driven to Christ and to, to cherish God and fear him. And the end of that, our confidence is supposed to rest squarely in the person of God. And our hope is supposed to rest in God. Meaning, what you get at the end of this redemption is God himself. That is the greatest hope that, that we can have. is That we get God himself. All these promises, why, why do they hold true? Well... Before the world began, he planned this thing and has accomplished it. And now there's a living hope to be with him forever face to face. I cannot but trust that he will get me there. He will put his law before me. He will put his spirit within me. He will put his spirit within us. He will help us encourage one another to exhort each other to, to, to get back on the straight and narrow. To be an encouragement to one another and, and to, to live before his presence and make it there to glory. So my exhortation is to trust in Christ and the Father through the gospel. Trust in the Spirit to get you there and, and hope in God. Hope in the Lord who has redeemed you with such a great price that words fail to be able to, to describe how valuable it is. Beloved, let's be encouraged and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you, by your Spirit, have done what we could not do. We could not, we cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We rightly would stand condemned under your wrath. If we were left to ourselves. But oh God. You have not. You have planned to save us. Deliver us from our sins. In the cross of Christ. In the blood of the Lamb. You have done so. By your free grace. As our Father. You have set your affections upon us. To love us. And send your Son. And we cannot help but wonder at that. And trust in the promises that are to come. Namely, we don't see you face to face right now. But we so long for that day, God. And we know you can bring us into your presence without spot or blemish forever. And so we want to be encouraged and changed by these words that you got our Father and the one who judges impartially, but we want to squarely find ourselves in Christ, shielded from your wrath, and, and that being satisfied with not only that, that now we can look pleasing to you, and hope in you, and all of our works as faltering as they may be, are accepted by grace, and our works being in faith before your face. 
worthy of our calling. So, God, make these things true of us and help us live according to